I want to tell you a story. It's a long story. It's a story unique in human history. It's a story about the Jewish people who belong to a place that defined them, called Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. But it was 2,000 years since the Jewish people had sovereignty over their own fate, as independent people living free under their own rule in a kingdom that was their part of the world. And it was nearly 1,800 years since the Jews were mostly forced out of their holy land and scattered. They suffered under a poverty that was political and economic, social and at times spiritual, living under the whim of whichever ruler where they happened to reside. Sometimes they prospered, but never for too long, and sometimes they were freer, but inevitably ruled. They produced exceptional works of literature and culture, yet were in most places alienated from society. According to their own traditions, they existed in a situation of spiritual and geographical galut, exile. In this state of galut, of exile, they struggled to survive as a people, determined to preserve their traditions, and waited for a divine redemption that would see them return to Eretz Yisrael as Moses brought their ancestors out of slavery in Egypt. This idea, the return, was the apotheosis of their faith, the concept which in some respects was the highest level achievement they could hope for here on earth. They never lost sight of this idea. They kept it alive in their prayers and in their traditions, in their hopes and their dreams for the future of themselves and their families. It was the great animating spiritual idea that was passed down through 18 centuries, that some day in the distant future, when God would set the world aright, the Jewish people would return to Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. And then, one day, they did. We did. After 1,800 years of galut, of exile, in the historical blink of an eye, we suddenly found ourselves once again a sovereign people in our ancient homeland and with a modern nation state of our own making, in our own image. How did this happen? How did we get Israel? How in the space of 60 years did we go from persecution in Europe to our independence? How did we get to the situation today, a country of 8.5 million people the size of New Jersey that dominates in economics and science and diversity and headlines and, yes, global conflict? Like I said, it's a very long story. But let us begin. <laughs> I would say to young people that they can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Hi everyone, welcome back to Jew Ought to Know, kicking off season two with modern Israeli history. I am super excited to be back. The podcast has expanded to include now a fully functioning or hopefully mostly functioning website at jewoughtoknow.com. That's O-U-G-H-T-A, jewoughtoknow.com. You can find the podcast there with links to iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. 
You can also find shorter, snackable, written versions of each episode in case you didn't have time to listen. I've also got a running blog where I'll be writing commentary on current events in Israel and the Jewish world. There's stuff up there already. Plus, there's also a Jew I don't know Instagram where I post nice pictures from Israel and Twitter where I tweet. I haven't quite figured that one out yet. But anyway, with the administrative business out of the way, let's jump into season two. As with anything in modern history, there's always a question of where to start. We don't start learning about American history with July 4th, 1776, so neither should we start Israel with its Declaration of Independence on May 14th, 1948. So when to begin? Now on birthright trips, we tend to start with the trial of Alfred Dreyfus in France in the 1890s, and with Theodore Herzl as the founder of modern Zionism. We'll get to that stuff, of course, but I actually want to start a little bit earlier, in the 1880s. Or, to be really precise, I want to start Israeli history on Sunday, March 13th, 1881, in St. Petersburg, Russia. On that day, March 13th, 1881, Tsar Alexander II of Russia did what he always did on Sundays. He took a ride in his carriage over the Pevchesky Bridge to view his soldiers. Alexander was a reformist. Coming to power at the end of the Crimean War, he set about the task of modernizing Russia. He brought Russia out of the feudal era when he ended serfdom in 1861, and he continued making political, economic, technological, and social changes that brought Russia more in line with the developed nations in Europe. People enjoyed greater religious freedoms, art and culture were invigorated with new life, human rights saw a little bit of a greater emphasis, as did the system of justice. He was also, by the way, the guy who sold Alaska to the United States in 1867 for $7 million. But don't get me wrong, he was still an autocrat, very conservative and repressive like all absolute rulers. So his reign, while it was more progressive than previous Tsars, engendered revolt and insurrection. And so there he was on a typical Sunday, riding around St. Petersburg with his guards and his officials, passing over the same streets and the same bridge and probably right by the same crowds that he did every week. And then someone threw a bomb under his carriage. Israel is complicated, and it's often difficult to know how to think about it. I totally get it. So many of the terms associated with Israel, like Zionism, Israeli Defense Forces, ultra-Orthodox, have become loaded, or even fraught with meaning, and in some cases fashionably controversial. The narrative too often gets boiled down to a simplicity from which each side derives its moral argument. Either we endured centuries of abject misery in Europe until the Holocaust led to the creation of the State of Israel, or, from the other side, the Jews are horrible colonialists who forced out, oppressed, and persecuted the native Palestinian Arabs. Neither of these narratives does the full picture justice, and these terms, in my view, are unreasonably tainted. So for season two, I'm going to tell the story about modern Israel, with an emphasis, I hope, of how we got to where we are today. So that when we read the news about settlements this and Gaza Strip that, we'll have a greater understanding of the events and the choices and the people which got us to this point. I understand that for many people, the perceived complexity and the amount of knowledge required to engage with Israel today is a huge barrier. And it's so much easier in our busy lives to just reach for the simplicity of apathy. I get it. And that's why I'm doing this podcast. 
But I also want to suggest that understanding Israel is not so complex that we can't do it. Sure, there's a lot to know, but I'll do my best to do what I did in season one with the book of Genesis. Proceed methodically, tell a story, and push us to think beyond just the facts of dates and events and people. Now, this is not a bias-free podcast. Whenever someone on Birthright asks me, but what does the other side say? I always tell them, there is no other side. And then I let that hang for a second while I watch them get confused. And then I ask them, well, which side do you mean? Because there are 8.5 million people living in Israel today, which means 8.5 million sides, to say nothing of the tens of millions of others around the world with a vested interest in the Middle East. We have religious Jews, very religious Jews, completely secular Jews, Arab Muslims, Arab Christians, Palestinians, people on the right, people on the left, residents of Tel Aviv and residents of Jerusalem, and on and on, just about every permutation you can think of. I'm a permutation too, American Jew from the Bay Area who works in and around Israel professionally and has my own particular political perspectives from my own particular experiences. So my goal here isn't to convert anyone or to push any particular agenda or to provide lots of spin to make Israel always look good or the Arabs always look bad or to hurl polemics or accusations about whose fault it all is. I'm not interested in adding more fuel to the fire. I am interested in bringing nuance and empathy because this is an incredibly rich story, an historic story. It's difficult to talk about and it's fascinating to talk about. And mostly, it's a very Jewish story of Jewish dreamers for a Jewish land who wanted to change Jewish history and in the process, change the Jewish people. It's a story we all ought to know. So back to Europe. We have this notion of an uninterrupted 2,000 year span of misery for Europe's Jews, a portrait that really isn't quite accurate. Life was definitely tough for the Jews in Europe, for they were nearly everywhere always second-class citizens, whose rights and privileges were subject to the whim of local rulers and the capriciousness of the surrounding Christian society. But to say that, if you were a Jew living in Europe between the 1st century and the 20th, that you would have been persecuted and oppressed and tortured, that isn't quite right. It really depended on the time and place. And in many times, and in many places, Jews prospered, enjoying a wide latitude of religious and personal freedom, and good and even highly intimate and beneficial relations with their neighbors. Jews produced extraordinary works of literature, art, and science, erected grand synagogues, built a global system of communication between the rabbis seeking answers to complex questions of Jewish law, and a global system of commerce between Jewish merchants moving and managing goods, money, and credit. There were often periods of Jews and Christians, and Jews and Arabs, and even Jews, Arabs, and Christians working and living side by side for long stretches of time. So, life in history wasn't universally terrible for the Jews of Europe. But of course, sometimes it was, and this is a story we tend to be more familiar with. The massacres associated with the Black Plague in the 1300s, the Inquisition and expulsion from Spain in the 1490s, and absolutely at the top of the list, the era of the Russian Tsars, especially the 1800s. Other European regimes and empires mostly tolerated the Jews, exploiting them for economic gain and the like. That's a subject for another podcast season. But the Tsarist Russians really hated the Jews, which is why I'm discussing Tsar Alexander II in 1881. Rabbi, may I ask you a question? Certainly, Labish. 
Is there a proper blessing for the Tsar? A blessing for the Tsar, of course. May God bless and keep the Tsar far away from us. <laughs> that, of course, was the greatest movie ever made, possibly Fiddler on the Roof, employing the kind of black humor that the impoverished Jews of Russia had to use amidst incredibly bleak circumstances. For the Jews in Eastern Europe, the 19th century was particularly awful, especially when compared to previous centuries. The Jews in Russia were confined to an area called the Pale of Settlement, a strip of land running north to south from the Baltic Sea down to the Black Sea, covering bits of modern-day Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, and other countries. There the Jews lived in shtetls, small, ramshackle villages of the kind that you see depicted in Fiddler. It's hard to underestimate how proscribed their lives were. They were kept in abject poverty, severely restricted in what kinds of jobs they could have, how far they could travel, or whether they could travel at all, how much property or other goods they could own. Jews could not educate themselves, even in their own schools. They often couldn't wear distinctively Jewish clothing like yarmulkes, kippahs. Jewish teen boys were conscripted in the military and forcibly baptized. All of this for a people who formed roughly 124th of the entire Russian population. They were totally at the mercy of the local princes and petty officials. Most horribly, Jews were subjected to the infamous pogroms, violent riots that targeted both Jewish property and Jewish lives for destruction. The scene from Fiddler on the Roof when the wedding is destroyed and the shop windows broken by the men on horseback? That's a pogrom. But in real life, they were generally far more vicious and murderous, and not at all uncommon. Anti-Semitism was official policy. Tsar Alexander II, beginning in fits and starts in the 1860s, began making changes to improve the lives of his Jewish subjects. Now, these changes weren't hugely impactful, but any time a ruler like Tsar Alexander came along who improved life even just a little bit, he was considered a gift. For instance, he allowed Jews in certain circumstances to attend school and university, and those in certain economically beneficial trades to live outside the Pale of Settlement. Compared to the status of Jews in the rest of Europe, these measures were pretty small, but relative to the terrors and the poverty of Jewish life in Russia, there was every reason to expect that the Tsar's friendly disposition towards the Jews would only improve with his reign. But things were actually going to get worse. The bomb that was thrown under the Tsar's carriage on March 13, 1881 didn't kill him. But the second bomb a minute later did. He was succeeded by his son, appropriately named Alexander III, who was the opposite of his father when it came to the Jews. He not only used the assassination as an excuse to suppress civil liberties, unleash a brutal police force, and violently suppress any form of dissent, he also imposed a series of measures called the May Laws, severely restricting Jewish housing, property, and business rights, and later establishing quotas on Jewish students and doctors, curtailing Jewish political participation, and expelling some 20,000 Jews from Moscow. These May laws were harsh enough that in a speech to the United States Congress, President Benjamin Harrison reported that the United States had complained to the Tsar about the treatment of the Jews. Okay, so Jason, why are we talking about Russia in the 1880s when this is supposed to be a podcast about modern Israel? Why all of this is relevant and why I picked this event to kick off modern Israeli history is because of how elements within Jewish society responded to this ongoing crisis. Many Jews left Russia, immigrating mostly to the United States, but also to South America, and in smaller numbers, Palestine. I'll revisit this in a later episode. But for those who stayed, they began to develop social action around a particular concept, 
the spiritual notion, nearly 2,000 years old, that the Jewish people would someday return to the land promised them by God, the Holy Land, the land of Zion, Eretz Yisrael, the land to which we as a people are indelibly tied. Bashana Haba'ah Yerushalayim. Next year in Jerusalem, we say on Passover, and until this period, it was always an expression of spiritual fantasy, and not normally a tangible dream. But things were changing. In the 1870s, in response to the oppression of Tsarist Russia, small organizations began to form in the tiny towns of the Pale of Settlement. They were collectively known as the Chovaved Zion, Lovers of Zion, and they functioned as kind of secret clubs, offering, say, Hebrew language classes or Jewish history lessons or even choirs or self-defense courses. Although the Lovers of Zion clubs were independent, they were organized around a central idea, that the key to the salvation of the Jewish people is in establishing a government of their own in the land of Israel. Although we don't have the word Zionism until 1890, this is it. This is the root of Zionism, the idea that in order to survive both physically and spiritually, the time has come for the Jewish people to return to their ancient homeland in Israel. Now it's important to understand that the Chovavet Zion weren't political. The political idea of Zionism, actually creating that Jewish state, is 10 to 15 years away, with Theodor Herzl. At this point, the lovers of Zion were generally promoting two things. A concept of Jewish cultural nationalism around the Zionist idea, and small-scale Jewish emigration to Palestine to form agricultural communities there. So, they did things like teaching people Hebrew and raising money to establish small settlements. The Chovevet Zion even had their own special song. You've heard it. It's called Hatikva. Actually, back then it was called Tikvatenu, which means our hope, instead of Hatikva, which means the hope. But it's basically the same song. It was written by Naftali Herz Imber from what is today the Ukraine in 1877. And some of the words have since been changed, but this is where we get today's Israeli national anthem. In the process of all this, the Chovavet Zion clubs became the organizing communities within which the Zionist dream would marinate. And although at first these small Zionist clubs were basically independent, a leader soon emerged. His name was Leon Pinsker. He was from the Ukraine, and we might consider him the first major Zionist leader, at least in Eastern Europe. Although on birthright we tend to focus on Theodore Herzl as the original Zionist leader, Pinsker had a hugely influential role a decade before Herzl came on the scene. In fact, a lot of Herzl's work was built on the Zionist ideas that Pinsker had already established. In 1882, Pinsker published a book in response to the pogroms and persecution that he witnessed in Russia. He called the book Auto-Emancipation, and it's hard to understand how deeply influential this book was it really struck a nerve amongst the Jews of Eastern Europe. His main idea was that the Jews had no nation of their own, no what he called center of gravity to provide national dignity. They were considered phantom people by the non-Jewish majority, and they were feared and hated. There's something unnatural, he wrote, about a people without a territory, just as there is about a man without a shadow. Therefore, the Jews would never be accepted into society, and so they had to establish their own independent national homeland. Pinsker actually wasn't particular about Palestine. He felt like the homeland could be anywhere. But what his auto-emancipation book achieved was what we might today call an effective awareness campaign. He woke up the Jews of Eastern Europe to their profound vulnerability and to the sense that their situation in Russia was hopeless. 
He put Zionism on the map as the central organizing principle of these Jewish communities, and in 1884, he became the head of these Chavavet Zion clubs, and effectively the leader of the Zionist movement. Between 1884 and his death in 1891, Pinsker built an effective grassroots organization around the Zionistic idea of establishing a Jewish national homeland in the land of Israel, and he set in place the coordination and funding mechanisms for gradual and increasing emigration to Palestine. After nearly 2,000 years, the Jewish people were now beginning to return home. So let me sum up. Because of the severity of oppression in Eastern Europe, and especially in Russia, Jewish leaders like Leon Pinsker developed an idea to save the Jews. They argued that there was no future for the Jews in Europe, and so they would have to establish their own independent homeland. They took this spiritual notion about the return to Zion and combined it with small-scale practical applications, like teaching Hebrew and facilitating immigration to agricultural communities in Palestine. And in this way, they developed the nucleus of what was to become the Zionist movement, the return of the Jewish people to Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. It wasn't universally accepted in the Jewish community. Not everyone was on board with this idea. But since we're talking about the origins of modern Israel, I'm going to conveniently leave that part out for now. What we have now is the dire situation in Eastern Europe propelling forward this notion of Zionism. Next time, we'll talk about what was going on in Western Europe. It was a different situation, but some of the leading Jewish thinkers there would draw the same conclusions. Entering the stage, Theodore Herzl. Talk to you then. Thank you.